my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 frames cast I'm not entirely sure what kind of what we're going to be doing with the show and where is it going to be going but I'm going to be starting right now with a um, topic which I think is kind of pretty personal to me and it's about films with a theme of nuclear war it's called Going Nuclear and I hope you enjoy it If we are attacked by nuclear weapons, these are the warning sounds you must recognize. First, the attack warning. If an attack is expected, the sirens will sound a rising and falling note like this. Next, the fallout warning. When fallout is expected, you will hear three bangs in short succession. They will be sounded by means of maroons like this. Or you may hear three gongs like this. Or three whistles like this. These all mean that fallout is expected. Warnings of the attack and of fallout will also be broadcast. When the immediate danger of air attack or fallout has passed, the siren will sound a steady note like this. Growing up as a kid in the 80s, I had a few obsessions. Star Wars, playing war, BMXs, new trainers, Crystal Palace Football Club and the A-Team. I'm not sure what kind of order these go into, but it was certainly for me the most prominent things in my life at the time. There was also one other thing that occupied a great deal of my time. It was something looking back I have no idea why a seven-year-old would possibly be interested in it. I could flatter myself and say I was unique, but instead I'm going to try and settle for very curious. It was something that looking back I have no idea why a seven-year-old would possibly be interested in. And that thing was the nightly news. I had no idea what the stories were about, but they seemed to be all about all the stuff I liked. The Americans were building their own Star Wars, complete with animations showing missiles being blown up in space. The Russians were fighting some guys who looked like the other guys who were burning books written by Salman Rushdie. And then came an event that would cause me to lose sleep for months. In the Ukraine, a reactor at the Chernobyl power plant exploded. A radioactive cloud was coming towards us, and what was worse, what this thing wasn't even the tip of the iceberg. There were nukes out there, and they were scary. Very scary. Word spread around the playground that just a single one would destroy half the world. Then our teacher told us that they'd been used before in the war, and people were still being born deformed. But even worse, 
was that the Russians had them and they didn't like us and that was what Star Wars was all really about. Suddenly the world became a very scary place. The guys burning the books wanted to come here and kill us. The guy with the red ink on his head from Russia sat up late at night plotting when he was going to launch his missiles at us. As time passed the fear subsided for me and as my love of film grew I found my fascination with the apocalypse manifested into a love of films with that theme. We all have a genre or subgenre of film that we enjoy more than others and we often forgive more average films just because they tick our particular fanboy box. The films I'm going to be talking about they all deal with a similar subject. What would happen in the event of a nuclear war? I thank god I didn't see them when I was young I probably wouldn't have slept from the age of 7 to 10. But first up is a small BBC documentary, The War Game. After an attack is over and the all clear has been sounded, arrangements will be made as soon as possible to treat any people who are ill or injured. Listen to your radio. Details will be given about what to do, when to do it, and how. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address, and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets, or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. <laughs> One of the harder genres of film to define is the docudrama. It's a genre that raises all kinds of debates amongst film critics and fans ranging from the nature of film reality to the presentation of historical fact in the absence of the known truth. It also has a very distinctive visual style. The so-called shaky cam technique is a direct descendant of the docudrama convention with the camera being handheld in favour of neatly well composed shots. One of the docudrama's early pioneers was the British director Peter Watkins. Born in 1935, Watkins was conscripted into the army in the 1950s and began making short films as a way of escaping what was for him an extremely miserable time in his life. Watkins was not a fan of the glossy Hollywood films that were so popular at the time. It's easy to look back with nostalgia at the films of the 50s and forget that much like today there was no doubt a large amount of dross amongst the gems. He felt that films were more concerned with visual perfection than the stars who were in them. Watkins however was interested in people and telling their stories in new and exciting ways. His early short films are remarkable pieces of work. Like many directors' early works, they are hugely experimental. The difference being, in Watkins' case, it's very clear his creative focus on the intellectual aspects of narrative storytelling, which isn't to say the films aren't visually striking either. What is most apparent, though, is Watkins' interest in normal people, their lives, and their stories. Recognising his talent, Watkins was taken on by the BBC to make films for the newly established BBC Two. Watkins submitted a dossier of possible ideas for films that included an early draft of The War Game. Yet his first feature film 
was a historical piece based on the Battle of Culloden, fought in Scotland in 1764. Watkins saw parallels between what was happening in the highlands of Vietnam, with the American attempts to pacify the growing communist insurgency, and what the British had done to the Scottish clansmen at the Battle of Culloden, which effectively destroyed an entire way of life. Watkins' approach to the film is nothing short of groundbreaking. If it were made by a major studio, Culloden would have been a technical and widescreen epic, complete with stirring music, perfect looking stars delivering sermons on the nature of freedom and oppression. Culloden is instead an intimate black and white 16mm film that deliberately resembles a contemporary newsreel report. Watkins used non-professional actors, many of whom were descendants of the clan's people they were actually portraying, eschewing many established conventions. Watkins' film is startlingly fresh, even by today's standards. Wednesday, April 16th, 1746. This is the advance battalion of an English government army of 9,000 men. Their objective, Culloden Moor, four and a half miles southeast of the highland town of Inverness. Their purpose, the destruction of the Highland Jacobite Army of Rebellion, a tired, ill-administered force of less than 5,000 men who wait just beyond the top of this ridge. Sir Thomas Sheridan, Jacobite military secretary, suffering advanced debility and loss of memory. Former military engagement, 56 years ago. Sir John MacDonald, Jacobite captain of cavalry, aged, frequently intoxicated, described as a man of the most limited capacities. John William O'Sullivan, Jacobite quartermaster general, described as an Irishman whose vanity is superseded only by his lack of wisdom. Prince Charles Edward Stuart, Jacobite Commander-in-Chief. Former military experience, 10 days attendance at a siege at the age of 13. You must understand, without putting too fine a point on it, that the army here is in a total shambles. I've got half my company missing. I just can't find them. They've gone off somewhere to sleep. Your Royal Highness, why exactly are Mr. Sheridan, Sir John MacDonald and Mr. O'Sullivan handling the administration of your army? Because I choose them. Because I consider those gentlemen to be utterly trustworthy and competent. The first thing my men will find when they do awake is the enemy on them, cutting their throats. Watkins pushes the camera close to his subject's faces and actively encourage the actors to look directly into the lens. Even when characters address the cameras directly, Clodden doesn't feel contrived or, for want of a better word, showy. It never, its style never eclipses the story that is being told. Most importantly, perhaps, is the fact whilst watching Clodden, you learn about the characters and the people they represent. It is, in my opinion, a remarkable piece of film that is more than worth seeking out and discovering for its many layers and intricacies. The film was released to universal praise by the BBC, and it gave Watkins the chance for his next project, The War Game. In 1964, Harold Wilson's Labour government came to power on the back of an election pledge to disarm Britain's nuclear arsenal. Instead, upon getting into power, Wilson's government began an expansion of Britain's nuclear deterrent, and despite protests from the public and organisations such as the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, the CND, the mainstream media largely ignored this broken election pledge. One person who did not forget was Peter Watkins. He submitted his treatment for the war game to his BBC employers, who despite reservations provided a budget of £17,000, along with a stark warning that it was highly likely the film may not even be finished when it finally did go into production. The BBC had a larger role in this story to play, 
but why at this stage were they even warning Rockin the film might not get made? Simply put, the government was worried. As part of his research into the film, Watkins had written to the Home Office and asked some questions about how prepared the government were in the event of a nuclear war. The Home Office knew its central planning was woeful. Despite being intent on having the means to wage war, the government had planned for what would happen if war actually came to British soil. In turn, the Home Office began to exert pressure on the supposedly neutral BBC to stop the film from being made. They were, however, too late. Watkins had already begun making the war game and would mercifully manage to complete the film. Watkins chose to explore the prelude and aftermath of a nuclear strike on a small corner of Kent. Minor in scale, perhaps, but this is a film that highlighted a fundamental breakdown in the role of government to serve its people. When we think of films that have a political slant, it's reasonable to assume that they have a particular political bias. Watkins, however, explores the failings of both past and present governments. Neither Conservative or Labour are ever directly referenced. Instead, it's simply government in general Watkins points his film towards and the people affected by its failings. The film employs many different cinematic techniques, from voiceover narration, reconstructions, animations, and like Clodden, the wargame has a quasi-journalistic approach to its fictional scenes. Characters, who are for the most part never named, speak to the camera replying to questions which are spoken off-screen by a reporter. Uh, excuse me, uh, what are you doing here exactly? Well, we're issuing to as many householders as possible a copy of this booklet, which tells them how to prepare their houses against blast and fallout. Have people not seen this booklet before? Well, a copy was prepared some years ago, but uh, it didn't sell very well. It wasn't... it wasn't free? Oh, no, no, it cost ninepence. The questions are the ones Watkins felt the media and public should have been asking. The people on the screen are the victims, as are by association the people watching the film. Watkins further highlights this by intercutting scenes that are actual interviews with members of the public. Carbon-14 is one of the most dangerous elements of radioactive fallout. Do you know what it does to the human body? Oh, no, I'm sorry, I haven't heard of it. I don't know much about it, Tommy. Radiation at all. No, I don't. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know. In 1959, a Home Office manual wrote, Public education in the matters of radioactivity will be progressive during the next few years. Do you know what strontium-90 is and what it does? Um... No, no, I'm afraid I don't. No, I don't. I've no idea, really. I, I know it's some sort of gunpowder or something that blows up. It's easy to mock their answers as being stupid or naive, but you really have to think about the difference in how easily obtainable information is now compared to the 60s. Take swine flu. During the recent hysteria, we had a minute-by-minute -minute coverage of the outbreak on the news. Countless programmes about the effects of swine flu. Websites telling us how to prevent it and advising us of the symptoms. The media we take for granted simply didn't exist in the early 60s, and the dynamic of the relationship between citizen and government was clearly that of the average citizen being the passive receiver of information. With this in mind, it's easy to make the connection to the real people being interviewed with the piles of dead bodies we see later on during the film's fictionalised scenes, who incidentally are not merely those killed in the first blast, but those who have simply starved, died of radiation poisoning, been executed in the absence of adequate medical care, or simply regressed into a vegetative state to the point whereby they have withered and died. Such an effortless blend of the real and reconstruction give the war game its chilling reality. This is not a traditional piece of narrative filmmaking. There are no central characters giving us insight into the events that are unfolding and its effects on them. In the absence of these character moments, we instead have sound bites and vignettes from the characters on screen, 
that highlight the myriad of social and economical issues a nuclear strike would create. This woman is arriving from Bermondsey into Kent. She and the other women on this evacuation bus have had to leave their husbands and elder sons behind in London. According to the last published government plan, there is no provision made for granting the facilities of evacuation to able-bodied men over the age of 18. It is therefore, even at this early point, that an attempt at mass evacuation might fail because it's not known how many women would refuse to leave their husband and their home, to journey with restricted possessions to an unknown town, there to be compulsorily billeted with an unknown family. Watkins, England is not a place built on unwritten codes of chivalry and gentlemanly conduct. It's an England with deep racial divides, where shopkeepers will profit from other people's needs and neighbours defend their homes from each other with shotguns. Players of tomorrow is receive uh, five rooms as ten evacuees arriving from the London area sometime tomorrow morning. What am I going to feed them on? It's up to you, man. Are they coloured? Within a country where there is still a degree of racial and social prejudice, where there is still a shortage of housing and living space, a number of measures would almost certainly be necessary in attempting the evacuation of an estimated ten million people. For this woman, the compulsory sheltering and feeding of an extra eight people. For the family who have fled this house, the immediate requisition of their home. For this man, perhaps imprisonment if he refuses to billet. Eight, I'm not having eight. Sorry, sir, you've got to take eight. I don't want to, I'm not having eight. I haven't got enough food in there for don't eight. Don't argue, Mr. don't Mr. argue. Mr. Mr. I warn you that under the emergency regulations, with four rooms and a kitchen, we can, we can be forced to take eight people. This is not the stoic Britain from the war where communities sheltered from the bombs and tube stations singing and laughing to George Formby songs. This is a Britain that would quickly fall apart into civil disorder as the survivors begin to emerge into a landscape that was for the most part a radioactive wasteland governed by near medieval levels of policing. One of the most interesting aspects of the war game is the way in which Watkins uses actual quotes from theologians, scientists and religious figures. The war game is very much an exercise in the presentation of reality and rather than having the actual experts on the film speaking, Watkins uses non-professional actors in stage interviewed scenes. In the next world war I believe that both sides could stop before the ultimate destruction of cities so that both sides could retire for a period of 10 years or so of post-attack recuperation in which World Wars 4 to 8 could be prepared. On the whole, the quotes from these so-called experts are utterly ridiculous. Think about Dr. Strangelove's vision of a post-apocalyptic world. What these people are saying isn't far removed. The total lack of human understanding is breathtaking, yet strangely understandable. People didn't really know for sure what the effects of a nuclear war would be, much like global warming now. Most sane people know that the world is heating up because of humans. Yet there are those who say it's just a natural occurrence. Nuclear war provoked very, a very similar debate in the 50s and 60s. Some people simply thought that after the destruction, the human race would simply go back to a normal and rebuild. The war games detractors would say the film presented a necessarily depressing view of a nuclear war that was far from reality. What interests me most about these scenes, though, is the way in which we interpret what is being said. Although the lines are real, the people saying them are not the comments authors. Does this make them seem less real, or does it complement the idiocy of them? 
Certainly, the reading for decidedly non-professional in delivery, yet it's a technique that for me perfectly fits into the experimental nature of the film, and why I'm repeat viewing the film gives so much more to explore and think about. It's also probably as good a time as any to talk about Watkins the director. Like many young directors, Watkins is someone who's clearly enjoying his new toy. The war game is not all about substance, it's also about style too. It begins with the most impressive tracking socks I've ever seen in the years I've been watching film. The camera moves on the back of a courier's motorbike through streets and into a local council all in one effortless move. As visually impressive as this is, it's also perfectly in keeping with the tone and pace of the film. It doesn't feel showy or flash, moreover it establishes the kinetic pace the film unfolds at. It's very much a scene that needs to be listened to as much as watched. London, Friday the 16th of September. It's just been confirmed that late last night, in order to show collective communist support for the Chinese invasion of South Vietnam, the Russian and East German authorities have sealed off all access to the city of Berlin and have stated their intention of occupying the western half of the city within 48 hours unless the Americans in Vietnam withdraw yesterday's decision to use tactical nuclear weapons against invading Chinese forces. Here in Britain, Her Majesty's government has declared a state of national emergency to last the duration of the present crisis. As from 12 noon today, the central government will cease to function and the administration of the country will be handled by 15 regional commissioners. Further, a network of emergency committees consisting of local councillors is now being set up in every major town and county borough in the country. In view of the seriousness of the international situation, Her Majesty's Government has decided that the first task of these emergency committees will be to implement the evacuation of a certain proportion of civilians to safer areas in Wales, the Lake District, parts of Northumberland, the Midlands, southwest England, Dorset, East Sussex and Kent. In accordance with the 1962 government plan for evacuation, this dispersal is to apply only to certain specified classes of civilians. As from 0900 tomorrow, we are to receive a total quota of 60,000 evacuees in five priority classes. Class 1, children under 15 travelling with mothers. Class 2, school children under the age of 18. Class 3, adolescents under the age of 18. Class 4, expectant mothers. Class 5, people who are blind, crippled, aged or infirm. Which are there any fathers? No, no fathers. This thing perfectly established the setting for the film and the background as to what is happening. Here rather than just using a normal voiceover, Watkins uses a stage radio broadcast that informs the viewer and most importantly fits in perfectly with the reality within which the film is taking place. This would be the kind of broadcast that people in the film would be listening to in this kind of event. It's a form of exposition we see in modern cinema and television all the time yet here is actually contributing to the film's overall aesthetic and style. There are numerous instances in the film where you could argue the film has a shaky cam style, yet it never feels like it's being moved because Watkins thinks it will make the film look more realistic. Moreover, the camera is moving in the reality of that scene. Take for example the scene showing the firestorms raging in the streets. We see the flames raging and the wind sucking people into the fires. The camera buffets and move because if the scene were real, the cameraman would be unable to keep the camera steady and shots tightly composed. Watkins made us believe two entire armies were fighting in Culloden by simply shooting a single cannon from multiple angles. Here he makes you believe an entire town is burning through a wind machine and a cameraman being forced to try and walk forward whilst simultaneously being pulled back on a harness. 
Within its center, the rising heat from multiple fires caused by both the heat flash and the blast wave upsetting stoves and open furnaces is sucking in ground-level winds at speeds exceeding 100 miles an hour. This is the wind of a firestorm. Indeed, for a film with such a limited budget, the war game never looks or feels anything other than frighteningly real. We don't see any huge mushroom clouds, but we do see the reaction of the people who are seeing them. I find this kind of filmmaking far more scary. The human imagination has, for me, always been able to conjure images far more horrific than cinema can ever create. Because it's a film about nuclear war, it's obvious there are going to be scenes of bodies and the wounded. Rather than filling the screen with people walking around with their arms hanging off, Watkins pushes his camera close to sores and burned flesh on the arms of people, and most notably children, who mournfully stare into the camera. Not only do we see the physical effects of an attack, but we also see the mental effects such an event would have on the population too. The thing that terrifies me most is the little ones. If they've suffered badly from the effects of, of the sight of this horror and destruction, it is probable that as a consequence, some of them may suffer terrible character disorders. One just doesn't know. I saw one of the little boys in the compound here yesterday. He was bouncing around, playing hopscotch, I think, and suddenly he sat down as though he were very tired. His face went listless, like that of an old man. The war game is, and most importantly, a film that is about educating its viewer. Key to this is the film's narration, spoken by a young Michael Aspinall in the now often lambasted BBC Queen's English style, is one of the most chilling aspects of the film. I'm not mocking it when I say there is almost no change in tone or pitch as it is delivered, such is the power of the images. Watkins creates there is no need for bombast or artificial emotion. For anyone who has seen the classic series The World at War, narrated by Laurence Olivier, there were times when Olivier the actor would pepper the narration with dramatic touches and nuances. Although effective in that series, The War Game is a film that is understandably taking itself incredibly seriously. Watkins uses the narration as strictly a device to deliver cold hard facts and terrifying what-ifs. Due to radiation, this little boy has only half the requisite number of red blood corpuscles. He will be bedridden for seven years. Then he will die. This happened at Hiroshima. This girl is pregnant. Because of her constant exposure to radiation, she has no idea whether or not her baby will be born alive. The only thing I can equate it to is Richard Burns' opening monologue to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. As a child, I was petrified simply by his use of the word scrutinised. In the war game, Aspinall's delivery lingered in the mind as images of the dead bodies and dying children filled the screen. It's easy to forget that when watching the war game, it is just a piece of fiction. There is almost an air of inevitability about the film, and the events being betrayed are a terrifying glimpse into the future that is going to happen. It is the end of the film that the narration reminds us that the future need not be so certain. 
on almost the entire subject of thermonuclear weapons, on the problems of their possession, on the effects of their use, there is now practically a total silence in the press, in official publications, and on television. There is hope in any unresolved and unpredictable situation. But is there a real hope to be found in this silence? The world's stockpile of thermonuclear weapons has doubled within the last five years. And now is the equivalent of almost 20 tons of high explosive to every man, woman and child on the planet. This stockpile is still steadily growing. Is perhaps the war game's call to arms, an act of empowerment delivered in the most matter-of-fact way possible? By the end of its 45 minutes, the film really should have been preaching to the converted, except in order to convert, the film needed to be seen, which was one luxury the war game would not be afforded. Peter Watkins had, by making the film, made many powerful enemies, none more so than the British government. The BBC is, by remit, supposed to be an impartial organisation, free from any external influence. Upon seeing the film, the Home Office began to exert pressure on the BBC not to show it. Rather than reminding the Home Office of its impartiality, the BBC decided to comply with the government and decided it would discredit Watkins and the film, declaring it an artistic failure. The BBC even ran a headline that Watkins had used tripwires in the filming of Culloden on unsuspecting actors. Of course, these were nothing more than lies designed to give the BBC's credence for not showing the film. However, the damage to Watkins personally had been done. His and the war game's name had been irrevocably damaged. Questions were then raised in Parliament, directly, directly challenging the role of the government in the banning of the film. As a compromise, the BBC arranged a number of screenings, the idea being that by screening the film, the BBC would have fulfilled its obligation to show it. These were no ordinary screenings, however. Many people allowed to attend were members of the Home Office and military, as well as a select number of journalists. No mainstream film critics were allowed to attend at all. Of course, the Home Office and various other government and military branches present at the screening were completely against the film, as was much of the right-wing press declaring the film relentlessly depressing and devoid of any humanity or any hope. The film was also labelled a mere propaganda piece for the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Factions of the right-wing press however were more sympathetic to the film's cause, actively encouraging the BBC to show it as a matter of national duty. The sad truth was, however, all the BBC were keen to do was bury the film and the controversies surrounding it. The war game would not receive a full release for another 20 odd years, despite their claims it was an artistic failure. The film did pick up the 1965 Oscar for Best Documentary, an award the BBC was only too happy to publicise. Perhaps, and most tragically of all, Peter Watkins' career never really ascended the heights it deserves. His films are extremely hard to get hold of on DVD due to complex copyright laws and are rarely shown on television. Regardless of this, The War Game remains one of the most important films ever made. In today's culture of such disposable art, The War Game is a film that will linger long in the memory and achieves the rare few remaining relevant despite being made over 40 years ago. should by now have built up an emergency reserve of tin food or other foods that don't go off quickly and that can be eaten cold. 
Keep your food reserves in your fallout room. And remember to keep them well covered to protect them from fallout dust. There might be fallout dust on the packaging. Take care, this does not get into the food. So wipe the tins, packets and bottles. You may not be able to replace your stocks of food for a long time, so make them last. Most of the time, you'll be resting in your fallout room and you won't need to consume much food. Eat the smallest amount you can get by with and plan meals carefully so that there is no waste. And remember, keep your food covered from fallout. Wrap open tins and loose foods. Prepare small amounts at a time. You may not be able to replace your stocks for a long time, so ration food carefully. TV movie and the first things that come into your mind won't necessarily be the most positive of thoughts. Peruse through the channels on Sky or Cable during the day and you'll find a fairly depressing assortment of utter crap. There are of course the odd exceptions, as end the stereotype of the TV movie being easily forgettable, technical tragedies produced by actors so bad that props actually deliver better performances than the actors. We've all seen trailers that proclaim this is the film that changed the world or some other such nonsense, but in the case of the film I'm going to be talking about Today, this is not actually far from the truth. Coupled with the fact it's also one of the most watched TV programs in history, this film has written itself into the history books as something of a cultural phenomenon. The film I'm talking about is, of course, The Day After. For a more detailed overview of the film, I can recommend checking out the film's Wikipedia page, but the interim I will give a brief overview of the film's genesis. Commissioned in 1981 by NBC Motion Picture President Brandon Stoddard, who upon seeing the film The China Syndrome wanted to make a film that explored the effects of a nuclear war on the United States. Despite early concerns that the film would be too graphic and too expensive, the day after was eventually given the green light to be made. Writer Edward Hume and producer Robert Papiazan settled for Kansas to be the location of the story. Kansas not only had a beautiful countryside and great locations, but was also the home of too many Minuteman missile silos and various other military bases, making it a likely priority target in the event of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. The sheer scale of the day after was beginning to trouble ABC. The film would require a large cast of extras, as well as in a state-of-the-art special effects for the film's attack sequences. The project was offered to many directors who either turned it down outright, or due to other contractual commitments turned the project down. Eventually ABC would find their man and the man who I believe is responsible for the day after being the incredible film that it is. Our Star Trek fans, which of the 11 films are their favourite, and many will probably say the rough of Khan. Mine for the record is The Undiscovered Country, but both have one director in common, Nicholas Mayer. Mayer was originally hesitant about directing the day after. Fresh from the success of the rough of Khan, Mayer no doubt carried some sway with ABC executive. He refused to tone down the graphic nature of the film, and threw himself into research about nuclear war, during which he became very depressed and anxious, even laying fevers planning for the possible nuclear war as a joke. May's only compromise was the casting of a star in the lead role of Dr. Oakes. 
and I would meet the actor Jason Robards by chance on a plane who upon reading the script agreed to join the cast. Shooting then began in the small town of Lawrence in August 1982 before eventually being finished off in Los Angeles for editing and the completion of the film's many special effects. Read any discussion about the day after and you'll find one common theme amongst those who post. The day after is a film that scars for life, yet for the first ha half hour of the film I was time of actually switching off and giving up. The, uh, the day after begins with a montage that appears to have been commissioned by the Kansas City Tourist Board. We see images of rolling wheat fields, pristine white buildings, of a generic school that could have been lifted from a two-hour Bold and the Beautiful special. Introduced to the cast. Our lead, placed by Joseph Robards, is Dr. Oakes, well respected by his colleagues. He is a kindly father figure dealing with the intermittent departure of his daughter to another city. Or he spends time cheering on his all American football playing son. He takes time to dispense life lessons to a young pregnant girl in the hospital and reminisce through rose tinted glasses at the last near apocalyptic disaster, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh my god, it's 1962 all over again. Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you remember Kennedy on television? Telling Khrushchev to turn his boats around? Full retaliatory response. He didn't bat an eye. We were in New York, in bed. It's like this, remember? <laughs> 118th Street. Meatball sandwiches from Sharkies. Your last year's residency. Where that we made Maryland that night. We got up, went to the window, looked for the bombs. Didn't happen. It's not gonna happen now. Nah, people are crazy, but not that crazy. Well, you wanna know if I'm crazy? Mm -hmm. The Donnellys left today for Guadalajara. Guadalajara. I, I swear it. I spoke to her as they were pulling out. He said they were dovetailing their vacation at the rising international tension. Oh, cut it out. I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, they took their Vietnamese maid with them. And that rotten little barking dog <laughs> on the pushed in face. Oh, what about their little uh, combination tractor lawnmower golf cart with the silver hubcaps? <laughs> Probably. What if it does happen? What do we do? Then we have the young airman, Billy McCoy, who we see arguing with his new bride because of the hours he is working because of the crisis. It's one of those scenes where it becomes hard not to instantly hate the wife. Why, when clearly the world is on the brink of nuclear conflict, could she have reason to complain? You told me nothing like this was ever going to happen. Maureen is just an alert, that's all. I mean, we're going to run around and check things twice instead of once. That's it. Well, what am I going to tell my mother? She's got the house all set, a room for Skip. Well, why don't you go on down? 
No, no, I'm serious, honey. Why don't you just take Skip going down to your mother's and then I'll just join you when this whole thing is over, okay? That's just great. Finally, we have the Dahlberg family living in Missouri. We join them the night before the wedding of the eldest daughter. Father Jim is a farmer who stares impassively at the television, clearly beginning to realise the enormity of what is about to occur, barely acknowledging his family around him, who bicker and fight like all families in the 1980s films seem to do. White House, three quarters of an hour ago. She was in my... Well, all right, you don't have to tell me, but I expect the two of you to settle it amongst yourselves. Otherwise, I'll see that your father settles it for you. Now, Jolene, I could sure use some help with the casseroles when you're through. Give that to me. Press Secretary David Towns reports that both sides are engaged in frank and earnest talks aimed at finding ways to defuse the heightening crisis in Berlin. It's here I began to roll my eyes at how conventional the day after appeared. I could see Dr. Oaks becoming some kind of post-war leader who despite the horror was going to keep America alive through strength of the human spirit and family values. I could picture the moment where he delivered the young girl's baby accompanied with a cheesy speech about how the world needed to rebuild for the sake of the child's future. I could see Billy McCoy being torn between his patriotic duty to his country and the love of his new wife, gallantly staying with the unit into an emotional reunion with her at a refugee camp or some other such contrivance. The Dolberg setup would suggest the eldest daughter would overcome her seeming rebellious nature and mature into the role of a family matriarch, gallantly continuing the farm despite the enormity of what lies ahead. Why would I even have these expectations? Well, we are in the apparent safety of the TV movie. Previous disaster movies had their heroes, ordinary people, performing extraordinary feats of sacrifice and bravery with a triumphant ending. Yet the day after was never going to be a generic disaster movie, and nor was it ever intended to be. Nicholas Mayer was adamant that the film should show as realistic an account of what might happen as possible, and it's Nicholas Mayer, the director, that makes the film so successful. Mayer wants to put us in a position of safety, however, this is all cinematic sleight of hand. The setups were there to simply enhance the fall. We never see Billy McCoy's wife again, nor do we ever see Dr. Oakes' family apart from in a dreamlike trance the Doctor goes in towards the end of the film. We can have a m make one very sure assumption. They are either dead, killed instantly in the attack, or dying slowly and painfully somewhere else. And what an attack sequence the day after has. This was a large budget film and the attack scene is the most terrifying sequence I've ever seen couple perhaps only with Terminator 2 in terms of sheer shock value.
The image of the mushroom cloud is perhaps one of the most iconic in the world. Who can forget the image of the clouds above Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II? They were placed in a contemporary setting within the United States. The image of a mushroom cloud becomes an urban nightmare realised. Suddenly the film's opening seems less American schmaltz and more like a postcard to a way of life now obliterated in an instant. Of course it would be easy to dismiss the effects as looking a bit hokey compared to the effects we have today, yet never has been a better example of how effects should serve a story and not dominate it. There are no attempts made to explain who fired first or why, instead the film becomes more of an exploration of reaction. Take for example Billy McCoy. Prior to the attack McCoy left his unit almost immediately to be with his wife. Yet as he stumbles into the chaos that is the new world, it becomes abundantly clear his quest will be utterly futile. Dazed and traumatised, people stumble through the ash and fall out like ghosts. To begin with, Mayor does not overload scenes with images of chaos and death, instead the film's pace slows from what was quite frenetic prior to the attack to a more measured, meditative pace afterwards. Mayer wants us to absorb what we are seeing and be shocked, yet never resorts to cheap attempts at trying for a quick shock. One scene that particularly struck me is when McCoy picks up a companion who is thrown from a queue of people getting water from a pump. The long queue of pathetic looking people shoveling parts of water pump is something that we would normally associate with an image from the third world. Move this situation to a country like America and it's not hard to become acutely aware of how we take for granted even the most basic of services. It's these simple moments that truly highlight the gravity of what has happened. The Dahlberg family sit hollowed in a fallout shelter with the youngest son blinded by the explosion of the bomb. Medical aid is impossible as the child lies in agony whilst the daughter, who is due to be married, begins to panic that her husband-to-be has died. Incidentally, unlike the other characters we see at the beginning of the film, we do see his body, quashing any hope we might have at least one character in the film has a happy ending. Into this situation walks the character of Stephen Klein, played by young Steve Guttenberg. This was one scene that particularly resonated with me. Having been to America several times, the one thing that has always amazed me is how kind and hospitable American people are. Of course, there are no doubt exceptions to this, yet I can unashamedly say America and its people will always have a warm place for me. Yet in the day after, the arrival of a stranger in need is not met with compassion and tolerance, it is met with fear and hostility. Yes, Klein is allowed to stay, yet the very fact he is treated with such initial hostility seems decidedly un-American in nature. Critics of the film would argue that the day after is in itself un-American due to its liberal sensibilities. As we'll discuss later, the film did spawn a conservative sequel, yeah, I actually think man and writer Edward Hume's world is far closer to reality than many would dare think. Movie convention dictates the survivors band together to begin again, yet Hume's behaviour inherently ignores the collective in favour of the individual. In a contemporary context, I couldn't help but think about the severe flooding in England a couple of years ago. What amazed me was how communities that existed together for years seemed to turn on each other in an instant. In one example I saw, water was being distributed by the army. There was clearly enough for everyone, yet people quickly turned on each other, snatching crates of water and fighting. Yet in a similar situation, could I honestly say it wouldn't be the same? Probably not. The narrative centre of the film becomes Dr. O's hospital in Kansas. Very quickly it is overwhelmed by the wounded and the dying. McCoy and eventually Klein and the blind Dolberg boy, an increasingly ill oldest daughter, converge onto it. It's here Maya, the film director, comes into his own. Chaos is, for obvious reasons, an extremely hard situation to portray on film. Mayer keeps his camera movement slow. The camera tracks past mass graves and cranes, slowly over vast fields of full of the injured and dying. The day after pace slows dramatically after the attack, sequence giving us more time to fully realise the disaster that is unfolding. 
no more is this apparent in the physical degeneration of the characters. As the symptoms of radiation poison take effect and the mass of bodies grow, so does the sobering thought that death in such a tragedy is an anonymous affair. Hair falling out, skin pigment turns to a deathly pale, all traces of physical individuality are removed, leaving nothing more than a shell. Towards the film's climax, we see the universal basketball court has been turned into a holding area for the dying. The scene is the perfect marriage of measured camera movements and sound. Maya does not fill the soundscape with wailing and shouting. We hear the odd cough and moan, yet the real horror comes from the slow trap back, revealing the rows and rows of dying people. The scale of the day after never actually overwhelms the film. Maya cleverly t returns the film to its main character, Dr. Oaks. Suffering a breakdown, Oak stumbles from the hospital to, to return to his home to die. Man used actual pictures of the aftermath of Hiroshima bomb with Robars superimposed onto them, far from looking fake. The image of the broken Dr. Oak stumbling into a wasteland that was Kansas City becomes iconic within itself, despite the fact that matte work is in itself one of the most defining images of all time. As Oak stumbles into the wreckage of his home, the early scenes of him and his family seem left and tried from syrupy. Moreover, they become poignant reminders of the daily interactions that make up life. Helen? Get out of my house. Didn't you hear me? I told you to get out of my house. It's not often a film of a scientific debate, candlelit vigils, a TV audience of over 100 million, and provokes the then President of the United States to telegram its director, telling him his film has led him to sign a treaty limiting the amount of nuclear weapons in Europe. The day after did all of these, despite Mayer threatening to have his name taken off the film after falling out of ABC and vowing never to work in television again. They had the day after as a bona fide cultural phenomenon. It could be argued that before the day after, the full horrors of nuclear war were never really fully understood. The Cold War was about us not being like them, yet the day after stripped away any political and ideological difference between East and Western cultures and shows us that such differences mean nothing when living itself becomes mo nothing more than existence. Day after provoked a right-wing backlash. Some commentators argued it was too bleak. This backlash would extend to director John Milius making his version of a nuclear war film, Red Dawn. As a child, the film was essential viewing for me, yet upon seeing it again I cannot recommend watching it enough. Without a doubt, it is one of the most unintentionally hilarious films ever made. It's a film that is so unaware of its own idiocy you have to question the mental state of those who made it. Perhaps this interview with John Milius in Empire magazine may shed light on the matter. When asked what he thought about the war in Iraq, his reply was, I want to take a 44 Magnum and stick it in the face of an Iraqi, and then repeat the Do You Feel Lucky speech from Dirty Harry. I rest my case. Whatever the reaction to the film at the time, the day after is a film that will continue to shock audiences for many years to come. Is widely available on DVD. It's a tragic case of film that, despite deserving a two-disc special edition with commentaries and documentaries, is instead a rather bare single. 
disc 2 channel stereo affair. Despite this, I cannot recommend buying it enough. A nuclear explosion produces intense heat. This can get through unprotected windows and set fire to things in your home. But there are steps you can take now to cut down the risk. First, whiten your windows with white paint to reflect some of the heat away. This will cut down the risk of these fires. Then get rid of junk lying about in your attics and upper floors, especially old papers and magazines which can catch fire easily. The heat from the bomb strikes at attics and upper floors most easily, and fires there are usually the hardest to put out, so pay particular attention to these places. In other parts of the building, clear away papers and magazines, then net curtains from windows, and any old rubbish inside or outside your home which is likely to catch fire easily. Small fires can be put out easily if they are tackled at once. If they are left, they spread fast and soon get out of control. The fire brigade may not be able to reach you and you will have to protect yourself without any help. So prepare now. If you have a fire extinguisher, keep it handy. Or a garden hose could be very useful. Keep buckets of sand and water ready on each floor. Wargaming the day after are depressing, then there is no word in the dictionary to define how monumentally slit your wrist, barf with a toaster, awful, threads is. And when I say awful, I don't mean this is a bad film, quite the contrary, it is in fact quite brilliant. Threads first came into my possession as an impulse buy and payday a couple of years ago. Threads provoked a reaction in me that has never before or after been repeated. I felt compelled to take a shower and eat the healthiest dinner I could possibly make. I called people I hadn't spoken to in a long time and made a conscious effort to stop moaning and complaining about the trivial occurrences. Why? Because I generally felt the need to cleanse myself from what I had seen and in some pathetic way better appreciate the world and people around me. Originally broadcast on BBC2 in 1984, a year after the day after, Fred shares much in common with Nicholas Mayer's film. I have not read anything to suggest that writer Barry Hines was directly influenced by the day after but certainly when compared side by side there are very clear similarities between them. It is often called a television play, a drama documentary and even a science fiction film. Certainly there are elements of all these within the film. What makes Threads unique is its exploration of the scientific and sociological effects of nuclear war. Barry Hines and director Mick Jackson researched all the then known theories about what would happen in the end of a nuclear conflict, eventually deciding to explore them in the relatively new concept of nuclear winter. 
In this scenario, the ozone layer would have all but evaporated, leading to lethal levels of UV radiation. The worldwide temperature would plummet, leading to failed crops and famine, coupled with the inevitable breakdown of social order. It is perhaps the worst case scenario, yet it's also the most likely given the known facts about post-attack effects of nuclear weapons. In the context of the film, it is also integral to its central theme, as explained in the opening monologue. In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric. But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. Social breakdown is a common theme of films of this type. Breakdown and disorder certainly makes for better fiction. Yeah, I think Threads explores the concept in a far more reasoned and, dare I say, realistic fashion. The film uses the device of genre familiarity for its first half. We are introduced to the young couple, Ruth Beckett and her boyfriend, Jimmy Kemp. The couple have just found out they're expecting a child out of wedlock, yet Jimmy, rather than facing up to his responsibilities, behaves more like a character from one of the angry young men films in the late 50s and 60s, such as Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. His life consists of trips to the pub and casual sex with girls he meets, and caring for his birds and aviaries in his gardens. Come to give me a hand then? No chance. I've done enough for one day, I'm knackered. Not too knackered to be going out though, I see. It's different, isn't it? Anyway, I need a break and be down at house every night this week. Jimmy's family are unmistakably working class. Ruth, on the other hand, is from a middle-class family, yet the film lacks certain dynamics that we could easily expect given the situation. There is no disapproving on the part of Ruth's parents towards Jimmy. They are accepting of the fact Ruth is pregnant and do not pass judgement on her, and even display a real desire to start a positive relationship with Jimmy's family. This, this seeming lack of conflict regarding these issues tends to point the film's narrative arc towards Jimmy's changing from a moral drifter to the protector of Ruth and the unborn child. Running parallel to the story of the Kemps and Beckett's are the preparations by Sheffield Council for the possibility of a nuclear war. As the chief executive of the council and his staff begin to clear the bunker below the council building, it is clear from the outset that their job is going to be almost impossible. The bunker has been used to store junk in for years, the phone lines need to be installed and no one really knows what their actual roles are, let alone have, have had any formal training in what they are meant to be doing. In this respect, the film does not condemn the system, as it could easily do. Threads is by nature anti-nuclear weapons, yet within the film itself tends to avoid making sweeping political statements. The council leader is not so much part of a flawed system, but instead hindered by something far more human, the love of his wife. He knows there is no place for her in the bunker, and if the war does happen, she will die. Understandably, therefore, the biggest thing these people are underprepared for is the emotional trauma the attack will cause, something that no one could ever effectively train the mind for, and something that anyone watching the film can easily empathise with. Underpinning the film is a building sense of dread. The soundtrack is often interrupted by military jets taking it, yet these moments have little or no effect on the characters. Well, says, will you take some flowers down when you're finished? Third since tea time. Aye. Where are they going to? Finningley, I suppose. Why don't you pop down to WH Smiths and buy yourself an aircraft spotter's book? You start a new orbit, make a change from gardening. You can laugh, but there's something going on, I'm telling you. 
There's something going on tonight when I've had a few pints. Don't be going mad. You haven't only got yourself to think about now, you know. Why not? Might as well enjoy myself while I'm single. Not that long to go now, you know. You could be right there. Interestingly, it is the viewer who perhaps feels the building tension more than the characters. Throughout the film, we are given snippets of news reports in which we hear the growing international situation is escalating to a lethal point. The characters, especially Jimmy, ignore these reports. Perhaps it's too much to say they're being punished for their seeming lack of interest in world affairs, but their ignorance of the world around them is something very much reflected in the world today. If we look at a more contemporary example, such as September 11th, it was for many the first time they had heard of the Taliban or Osama bin Laden, despite being featured in a great deal in the media for many years previous to the attacks of that day. In its first half then, Threads appears like any other BBC play. The camera work is restrained with little editing within scenes, there's no non-diegetic music, and it's a story central rooted in the reality of Britain's class system. When the attack does eventually happen, it is indeed horrific and utterly terrifying. The reactions of people to the explosion easily papers over the suspension of disbelief we might have to the now dated special effects. One woman stops in the streets and simply wets herself. Other people stare in disbelief at the mushroom cloud appearing on the horizon, while some simply run as fast as they can. During the attack, Ruth remains with her parents and grandmother in the basement of their house. Jimmy's parents stagger from theirs into a destroyed street. There is no running water in the pitiful shelter they have made for themselves and the supplies they have kept are clearly not going to be anywhere near sufficient to keeping them alive. The reality of the situation soon begins to set in. The titular threads have already begun to break. In the first instance, all characters shown begin to exhibit clear signs of mental trauma. Electrical devices no longer work, and there are no channels to the outside world. Panic, quite understandably, begins to set in. No better is this shown in the council bunker. Communication with the outside world is so confused that making any meaningful sense of what is going on is near impossible. You haven't heard from County HQ for two days. Well, who the hell else have you tried? Well, send another motorcycle. There are no roads left. All the people here will be dead already. It's completely flattened. Round here, 50% will still be alive, but, but here, they're as good as dead already. They've probably received a lethal dose. What about here? Oh, it'd be pretty heavy there. If the wind's still blowing up from the uh, west-southwest, it's in direct line from the crew. Oh, 800 rads, 1,000, difficult to say. Depends what sort of cover they've got, of course. If they've got a decent cellar, we'll put it on the radio. Oh, right. There's no way of getting anything Look, out. Look, according to the release, Yeah. Yes, I'll pass the message on. No I expect it to do. You got some list of vehicles. Listen, I need I've got a message from Riverland Valley Police. They've managed to get through to beat Chief Workstepper. They've got some vehicles on the road, but they're nearly out of fuel. Well, what the bloody hell have they been doing with it all? They didn't tell me. They just said they want to know whether they can get some more. And they've got no food. Oh, God. Look, I've got... Just let me get on with it, OK? Coupled with the reality they are in fact buried under the building, they quickly resigned to the fact they were as good as dead anyway. In the context of the story, it is these guys who are supposed to be running the country, yet through no fault of their own, they are totally unable to. 
With this layer of authority removed, the direct effect is in the individual must fend for themselves. We are given a resolution of sorts to their story later on when soldiers break into the bunker to rescue them, only to find it has long since become a tomb, its occupants long dead from starvation, and most likely asphyxiation. In the Beckett house, Ruth's grandmother quickly dies from radiation sickness. Ruth is determined to find Jimmy, who instantly is never seen again, quashing any possible narrative arc that he would have the chance to redeem himself for his previous indiscretions. It perhaps makes Ruth far more tragic as a character. Her blind devotion to him has been without reciprocation. Her later loyalty to his memory, a tragic act of misguided devotion. Ruth eventually leaves the house to find Jimmy, not before, however, we are treated to a journey through the reality of nuclear war. The hospitals overflow with dead and dying. Doctor nurses are forced to fight against the wave after wave of the injured flooding into the hospital. Again, the idea of threads of society coming apart resonates on the viewer. There is no chance that people coming to the hospital will have much hope of surviving. The hospital will quickly run out of supplies. And what could they do anyway? The phone lines are dead, and the people who are supposed to be running the air in the council bunker are unable to manage anything effectively anyway. We see Jimmy's sister in prison in a tennis court, which has been guarded by armed traffic wardens. Her crime, most likely looting, is now punishable by death. It appears to be a convention of this genre, as both the war game and the day after all showed scenes of looters being executed. Such a harsh sentence was a reality, however. Documentary evidence suggests in such a situation the survivors of an event would effectively be enslaved. Money has had no meaning since the attack. The only viable currency is food, given as reward for work or withheld as punishment. In the grim economics of the aftermath, there are two harsh realities. A survivor who can work gets more food than one who can't, and the more who die, the more food is left for the rest. Threads then changes to become a document of Ruth and the daughter, the years following the attack. In an earlier scene, Ruth's father commented on her finding a new strength from being pregnant. These prophetic words come into her own when Ruth is forced to deliver the baby on her own in a barn on top of the moors. The scene is, for me, the most powerful of the entire film. The notion of a woman having to deliver a baby alone is horrific in itself, and yet this is done in a world totally obliterated by nuclear war. Clearly the child will have no future whatsoever. It will never know her father, and in all likeness be affected by the radiation. Ruth is forced to bite through the umbilical cord herself. There are no family members to save the moment, no shared joy in what is happening. It's easy to imagine what a nuclear war would do to infrastructure, but perhaps the real terror comes in imagining how hard our actual lives would become. We know the hospitals are no go for her. More than likely, she would be simply left to get on with it anyway. Her giving birth on her own is also fraught with danger. She has no medical aid, and in the event of a complication, will no doubt die herself. Central to the theme of threads is interdependency. Yet Ruth can only depend on herself, and although she is able to live with the baby without any problems, it's still a deeply harrowing spectacle that resonates a long time in the mind. Following the birth, the film then jumps forward a number of years, and through the aid of cue cards, we are given bleak facts about UV radiation and the decrease in population. Perhaps in other similar types of films, we would see humans turning on each other, warlords rising up and fighting each other for strange resources. Threads, however, is trying to root itself in a reality. The simple fact of the matter is that people would not have the chance to fight, because if they did, they would not have the chance to try and grow food, and would therefore die of starvation. We do see Ruth and her daughter a number of years later after the attack. Ruth is virtually blinded by cataracts, her skin badly sunburned and calloused. The cinematography is almost black and white, the stock is most likely 16mm, 
looks so grainy to the point where you can be forgiven for thinking there is interference on the screen. Through a series of static wide shots we see the survivors toiling the land, huddling for warmth, as well as the roof bartering for dead rats. The film becomes almost entirely dialogue free, which as the film jumps forward in time has a direct effect on her daughter. She is almost incapable of completing a coherent sentence with no formal education and life spent desperately trying to source food. She is emotionally and socially stunted. And again, you have to think that's the titular thread. Ruth's daughter is the product of a broken society. With no formal schooling, she, she like her peers, have regressed to an intellectual level, not far off a child half her age. The outlook for human civilization becomes therefore even bleaker. In one view, Ruth eventually dies. Clutching a book belonging to Jimmy, her death is anonymous and without any ceremony. Her daughter looks on empathically, seeming unmoved by her mother's demise. Again, it's a deeply moving scene in how underplayed it is. Ruth! Ruth! Work! 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 personal perspective, the way in which Ruth clings to the book as a reminder of Jimmy affected me quite deeply. I keep a mug my grandfather gave me before he died. The cup is utterly worthless to anyone, yet for me it evokes happy memories of a man I never really got to truly know. In the context of the film, the book is the last reminder of another human life, who will simply be forgotten as if he never existed. Ruth's daughter is then shown in montage living a pitiful existence spent begging and running from armed soldiers. The film's art direction is quite superb. The film's budget did not allow for a huge city state. Instead, Jackson uses real photographs followed by cuts to rubble in a totally believable world, and it's not hard to imagine the world beyond this. After seeing one of her gang shot for looting, Ruth's daughter is then raped by one of her male companions. The rape is not actually shown in any detail, yet again it represents the total disappearance of moral boundaries. Ruth's daughter and companion can be much, can't be much older than 15 and after the scene we cut to her alone, heavily pregnant stumbling into a basic hospital, complete with hanging body in the doorway. Unlike Ruth, she doesn't have any knowledge to truly know what to do, and with the help of an uninterested nurse manages to deliver the baby. The film ends with her about to scream at the sight of a baby the viewer never gets to see. We can only imagine its appearance given the likely radiation damage it has suffered. Freeze frame at the end of film long acts to immortalise. Think Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, living forever with all guns blazing. Fred's final frame serves as a warning for generations to come. The image is made all the worse because we don't actually hear the scream, it seems deafening nonetheless. Whatever genre Fred's fits into, 
is most certainly a film of two very distinct halves. Perhaps it's a good thing the film's natural home was television, as it would most probably be impossible for a mainstream film of such a bold narrative divergence to be made. Unlike the war game, the film was shown on mainstream television to universal praise. Fred is not an enjoyable film to watch, and it's hard honestly to recommend for someone to see. When life is so short, why spend two hours depressing yourself senseless? But Threads is perhaps a film that demands to be seen on so many levels. It's a real experiment in narrative storytelling. This wasn't written with a three-act structure in mind. It didn't stick to any genre convention or pander to audience expectation. And it certainly doesn't shy away from patronising you by saying, everything is going to be alright in the end. It has a searing anti-nuclear weapons message without ever hammering it down the viewer's throat such as the power of seeing humans reduced to cattle toiling fields for scraps of corn that doesn't need to better its message at you anyway. Threads is a film that will continue to be rediscovered by new audiences for many years to come. It is widely available on DVD, although tragically with no extras, yet it will be a purchase that will sit proudly in your collection. When you take cover in your inner refuge, you must not go outside until it is absolutely safe. And if the fallout is heavy, you may be in your refuge for quite a long time. Although the danger from fallout will get less and less as time goes by, you will never be able to judge for yourself how bad it is. Advice will be given to you on the radio, so keep listening. This advice over the radio and other instructions and news will be very important to you while you're cut off from the people living around you. So make sure your radio is in good working order. And if you have a spare radio, keep it in your fallout room. Radios must be battery operated because your electricity may be cut off. So be sure to get some spare batteries. As a series of films go, there is little joy to be found in the war game day after in threads, but there remain important pieces of film that are valuable historical documents. The world we live in today is far from stable in terms of countries trying to or attaining nuclear weapons, which in turn makes the films no less relevant from when they were first made. Incidentally, the international incident sparking the war in threads is because of a dispute between East and West over Iran. Recently, Russia agreed to sell millions of dollars of anti-aircraft equipment to Iran whose motive for purchasing the weapons was to defend nuclear development sites from possible attacks by either America or Israel. Georgia is sinking membership of NATO, which is widely backed by many member states. It's a move that Russia is massively opposed to given the recent war between the two nations, yet as a member of NATO, it would be the obligation of all member countries to come to its aid in the event of a future conflict. Aside from the political state of the world, these films are utterly compelling in works. They are brave, bold, provocative pieces of cinema that have a tangibility to the horror they are portraying. Seek them out by hook or by crook, but be sure to have Singing in the Rain queued up afterwards to cheer yourself up.
and that's going to be it for this first episode of the 24 Frames cast. I just want to give a shout out to um, some other podcasts that I listen to um, Cinema Slave, The Hollywood Saloon, The Slash Film Cast, The Tobolowski Files, The Battleship Retention. All the great podcasts, I can hardly recommend seeking them out. Many thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you, goodbye.